Hey, and welcome back to Folkcraft Revival. This week, uh, we have a phenomenal episode with Jesse Watson Brown over at uh, the Oak and Smoke Tannery. Um, I've been curious about vegetable and bark tanning for uh, years, but I've never taken the time to uh, do any research. Um, I've been making buckskin, uh, well, like I said, I think my first ones are I was four or five when my dad decided to try it. Um, I've been making buckskins ever since, but um, I've never delved into the traditional bark tanning or vegetable tanning. So um, this week we're talking about tanning small furs using uh, a traditional bark solution. Um, My furs as a brain tanner have always turned out fairly mediocre. I get them to the point where they're usable, but they've never been as soft as I would like them. And this provided a a fantastic opportunity to learn a different method. Um, I have a couple hides in my freezer, a couple furs, a couple furs in my freezer right now that I think I'm going to have to go uh, test this out on now. Um, Have both a roadkill mink and a, uh, no, something else in there. Um, at any rate, I was online and I saw a post um, by Jesse talking about doing a rabbit tanning workshop, and uh, I had to reach out to her. It intrigued me. Fortunately, she was willing to come on and share the knowledge she's picked up over the last few years with us all. Um, I've seen plenty of people online tanning uh, like fish skins and a decent number of people who do their own like hair off uh, leather like you would normally see at a leather shop. Um, something you would use for knife sheaths or something like that. But for some reason, I've never really seen very many people um, bark tanning furs. At any rate, Jesse does a great job at explaining um, the process we'd go through for a small or uh, we also we also mention differences when you move up something like fox size uh, several times. So small to medium sized furs. Um, she does a great do- job at explaining what we're doing and um, what we're looking for. So I can't wait to give it a try. Um, as a reminder, if you're enjoying these episodes, um, share them with a friend. That's the easiest way to get this podcast off the ground at the moment and um, help it spread is just share it with a friend someone you think would be interested, someone you know enjoys uh, the traditional skills, um, reach out and, and send them a link to the episode or uh, you know just tell them about it, something like that. Uh, let's get the word out and hopefully get this to, to spread a little. Um, I come at this from a background of having done some tanning in the past, um, all brain tanning or using eggs sometimes, but all uh, an oil and smoke tan. Um, So it was fascinating for me to learn about a different method. That being said, I hope we covered it well enough that those of you who've never done any tanning can still um, get involved and still feel like I covered things 
well enough uh, if you don't have a prior understanding of hides and working with them. Um, uh, we really tried to cover things thoroughly. So, so yeah, let me know if you have any questions or if we uh, forgot to to cover something in particular that you are wondering about, go ahead and hit me up. Um, um, Instagram is probably the easiest way. Just hit me up at Folkcraft Revival and yeah, DM me. I'll see if I can answer any questions you have. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the episode with Jesse. Um, first question I asked her was why, why bother tanning all that work, uh, dealing with stinky hides, you know, hours and hours scraping, why, when you can just buy it? Why, why did she get involved? And this was her response. Yeah, it is a really good question. And one that I ask myself, <laughs> I make sure I ask myself that actually. And, um, that there's a number of reasons. And I guess one, one of those main reasons is, um, the kind of how I got into it. Um, which is why I tan is because having got into more and more skills, I saw that it was a logical way to clothe myself in a wild way. And um, in particular, making use of skins that would otherwise have been thrown away. So it, everything I tan here at the moment are skins that would otherwise have been thrown away. So for me, that's making beauty out of in a way waste or what's considered waste, um, but is actually an amazing resource. So I do it because I love kind of delving into the skills our ancestors would have used to live on the earth. And I do it because I love making beauty and, and making things with my hands. So in a way I tan and then I end up with something that I can then craft with as well. So I tan in order to craft. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons. I love the alchemy of turning, like you said, the pile of stinky hides into some really usable, durable, completely biodegradable material. Um, yeah, lots of reasons. That's one I struggle with a lot because a lot of my my projects that I'm working on that people are always asking about, I, I have a hard time answering them because, yeah, you could do it. You could just go buy something. It would be... When you look at the time involved, it would be a lot cheaper, but you just miss some of the beauty of learning how to do something and how something works and making things with your hands. And I think, yeah, sometimes people just overlook the that aspect of it. Yeah, and I think there's also an element for me of really honoring honoring the life, you know. So say say it's a deer skin, they will have been hunted here and then the meat will have been eaten, but there's so much more to the animal than just the meat. And, and, um, you know, really wanting to honor the life and the death and make use of, um, their skins as well. And maybe their bones and antlers and things. Yeah. I don't think people realize how many animals truly go to waste. Yeah. Uh, at least in the U S I don't know what the UK is like, but around here, I don't know really any hunters that use their skins. I know a few other traditional tanners who do buckskin um, and they're always gathering skins from hunters, but I end up collecting most of my skins off of roadkill. And it's kind of sad seeing how many deer are on the road every year. 
especially this time of year during the winter is when most of them get hit around here. And I'm always passing deer out laying on the side of their own. It's kind of sad. It's beautiful to be able to use a part of that, and not let them go completely to waste. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I read a, a number just for the UK. There was something like 350,000 deer hunted wild. And, um, I only know <laughs> maybe enough people to count on one hand who actually tan those skins. So we're definitely not making any kind of dent in, um, and that might sound like a small amount for, for the States, but it's a lot here. <laughs> no, I think it's something similar here. I think I've read statistics on like a couple, I think it's like a one point some million deers that get hit on the road every year or something like that. It's kind of sad. I don't know what the hunted, hunted numbers are, but it's a lot of animals. Uh, you were mentioning how that kind of is what brought you into tanning, being involved in some of the traditional skills and whatnot. Do you remember your first hide? Can you tell us about your first hide? Was it a, a buckskin? Was it a, a bark tan? How did it turn out? <laughs> yeah, uh, I was vegan when I tanned my first hide. <laughs> um well, that's a whole other oh, story. That's an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's um, it is relevant because, uh, in a way, for me, you know, I, I really do this with a lot of respect. So, for me, it was logical, not not like a oh, I want to, you know, get into this gory thing. But it was like, well, this animal has died, and therefore, I want to honor its life, and that's why I was eating that way. And then. I, I soon realized I wanted to eat meat and um, wild meat. And so, yeah, so I tanned a, a rabbit skin with its brains and it was it was like a crunchy, papery thing at the end because I didn't really understand the concept of tanning, uh, like, like the, the full process. I just thought you had to rub a brain onto it and it might work. And um, it was very crunchy, but it was a journey, I guess, um, it was my it was a big teacher and then I did try buckskin next and that was like a big bit of cardboard because um, I was doing that out of a book which a book which I really respect but it just is not the same as someone's hands there going no pull it a bit more or you know keep going because it's still wet or I, I just so yeah I made some nice crunchy things that I thought I don't think you can wear this <laughs> um at all and then i yeah what what a uh, what book was the book that you started with it was matt richards deer skins into buckskins okay that's actually one of the ones i started with too i started with uh that one and jim riggs's blue mountain buckskin yeah I, I mean it's now i know how to make buckskin it's an amazing book and i i read it now and i'm like well how did i not understand <laughs> I was doing it with a few friends in the UK and we didn't know anyone who could teach us it, it's I guess it's such a different context here um you know there's it's there's not really a big primitive skills or tanning revolution going on or, or more in recent years there is but back about six years ago when I was starting there really wasn't I didn't find anyone that could teach me so we were kind of stuck with books and um it wasn't really until i got taught buckskin that i really actually made something really soft 
So how much of a difference is having a hands-on teacher really make? Um, in, your, in your opinion, how, how, how much did it fast forward your, your learning? How, how much did it shorten your, your learning period? I think? I, yeah, I don't know how long it would have taken me to get a soft box skin had I stayed in damp England and tried to learn from a book. Uh, <laughs> I mean, nothing, if nothing else, I went to the dry, uh, the desert region of the Pacific Northwest and, uh, learn in a hot country that made a big difference and having a teacher made a massive difference as well um so i i wouldn't know the time scale but it was instant the move from cardboard solid things to luscious soft buckskin was instant so it wasn't like my arms couldn't do it it was just this some some of the techniques had to be the subtleties of it really I think there's within tanning there's there's so much subtlety of what you as you do it more you begin to read the signs in the hide maybe like woodwork as well like you do you kind of can read the material and and see oh well that bit needs this and that bit needs that and oh you can leave that bit for now and and I don't think you can convey that level of subtlety and um, tactile experience in a way in a book um yeah it's difficult i uh i've done most of my learning by books as well um just because where i've lived I've, I've never really been around other people that are involved in the primitive skills community and traditional skills and whatnot i started going to some of the gatherings and whatnot and it's fun to meet people and i've taken some classes now and it makes a huge difference in my mind but I learned from books as well, and a lot of my projects were just trial and error based on what I know should I should end up with and what I'm actually ending up with. So, yeah, like I, I learned bow making. I think my first probably eight or nine bows exploded in my face when I tried to draw them. So <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while before I got one that was suitable. Mm. That's patience. Yeah. So you went from rabbit skins to buckskins um when did you start bark tanning um the first skin i bark tanned was actually uh in the states as well it was with a woman called katie russell um she most she she mostly teaches buckskin but um we did i did a hide there with her and loved the process but that was that was all I did in um in the states and it wasn't really until I got back home to the UK and started looking into it and also started thinking about what material best suits the environment where I live because it rains a lot here and is generally a damp environment and to be wearing buckskin in it is it's not as comfortable as it was in high desert. So I really wanted to think about what, um, what clothing would be more suitable for this climate. And um, so really got more into bark tanning once I got home. There's a, yeah, more of a significant uh, history of bark tanning there as well. From what I, I know it's, it's kind of why it was, I don't know, more common back there, I would assume. That's my understanding as well. And um, I guess in particular in Europe, 
wide and um you know where it's still really alive in terms of a skill that hasn't sort of died out and is being revived is in Scandinavia with the Sami in the north and things they have traditional bark tanning that's you know been going small scale traditional bark tanning that's been going on and in the UK there's only one true bark tannery tannery left um which is actually about half an hour from here <laughs> um but it's it's like a commercial scale bark tannery but there's only one left whereas it was like a massive industry before yeah i think leather's been replaced by a lot of different materials these days as well and that probably has been a contributing factor to it yeah and chemical tanning or and in particular i guess the exportation of that task to countries that have slightly lower environmental and worker standards it's true tanning can be a uh, nasty business especially today's chrome tans and whatnot yeah i guess that's another part of my why which is i want there to be an alternative to that and for some reason i have a passion for it so I feel like I want there to be an alternative available to chrome tan leather and it's um you know if there's only one tannery left in the UK that's actually a proper commercial scale tannery then you know I love the idea of backyard or micro tanneries and creating alternatives to the chemical tanning industry so yeah that's another why besides which project projects like this are just a lot of fun um or at least i enjoy them so yeah it's yeah you you come up with you end up with something useful at the end of it and you revive an old craft and then it's a phenomenally phenomenally enjoyable hobby so that's probably 50 percent, 60 percent of why i do a lot of the projects i do it's just i have a lot of fun learning how to do things and experimenting with them testing things so Yes, thank you for saying that. I can't believe I forgot to say I do it because it's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's why I do it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Like all those reasons, I could put on anything, but I enjoy it. Yeah, I love it. It's magic. Yeah. Which some people have a hard time imagining when you're like, yeah, I'm going to go skin a uh, roadkill animal that's been sitting on the side of the highway for the last two days and it really stinks. And then I'm going to spend, you know, 20 hours scraping it and turning it into something soft and usable. <laughs> People just look at you crazy when you say it's fun. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and jump in now to talking about uh, the rabbit, the rabbit skins, rabbit furs, um, how to tan a small, a small fur. Uh, I figured that'd be a suitable project for someone who's just beginning. Um, a large height is going to be a little more daunting to someone who's just starting out. So uh, yeah, you have the, the workshops on tanning small rabbit furs, bark tanning them. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and dive into that. What, what sort of, you have any tips for skinning out smaller fur animals like that? Or is it pretty much follow, well, for someone who, who skins, it's not that big of a deal, but for someone who has limited skinning experience any tips for them on how to get a clean hide off of an animal 
<laughs> Good question. I mean, for someone who skins, say, deer, the, the main thing to think about if you're skinning a rabbit is to not tear it apart because it's so much more delicate than something like a deer or a sheep or something. Um, but but in general, yeah, I mean, I would say the main thing is to use, you don't need to use your knife as much as you probably think you do. Um, in fact, once you've made the initial, I, I, t I don't tend to um, case skin, which is when you make a kind of larger cut around the back legs and pull the whole skin over. I, mean, you, I sometimes do that, but Nor say it's a rabbit they tend to the the hunters will have gutted it in the field so it will have already that cut up the belly so that's how i tend to get them from people who go out rabbit shooting so they will have already made that cut up the belly so it doesn't really make sense to case skin them um so so you just use that cut or or if if it wasn't made you could make that cut and gut the rabbit and then I pretty much entirely use my hands um for one that stops damaging the skin you know you, you can quite easily make a cut in the skin um and obviously you don't damage the meat as well and um yeah it's pretty easy a rabbit it's surprisingly easy actually whereas foxes or so i not often do foxes as well and those i would case skin generally because it means you're less likely because you're not going to I'm not going to end up eating a fox um so I wouldn't need to gut it and therefore I wouldn't I would try and avoid making any cuts around the gut area just to avoid opening that whole area up um especially being like a scavenger like a fox so then I would make a cut which basically runs along the back legs um that means you can pull it off as a whole piece all the way down to the head. Um, yeah. So uh, case skinning, can you hurry and describe that for people that don't understand the difference between a case skin and a flat yeah. skin? So, so as I described, if, if you've got a rabbit and it's already been gutted or you gut it, it will have this cut up the belly. And so what you'd end up with would be essentially, like you say, a flat piece of skin, uh, flesh side one side and the hair the other side. If you skin the animal as a case, so you're basically, as you skin it, you're kind of turning the skin inside out. And what you'd end up with would be more like a tube with the fur on, say, the inside and the flesh on the outside. Um, and... That can be ad that can have advantages because then you have no edges, and edges are, can be maybe harder to scrape or harder to soften. So it can be an advantage, but I don't tend to do it because in the end, when I'm sewing something, I'll cut it open anyway. And yeah, so I tend even if I case skin, I then cut it open. <laughs> Um, that's how I do it. But I know really traditional, you know, if you see like trappers and things, their fur is almost always case skinned. Um, yeah. Uh, I know that was for, um, they were doing it for the market, uh, the fur market. And at that point you have usually a different colored fur on the underside. So if you cut it up the middle, you end up with a little strip on each side, each edge of your, your fur that's a different color. 
If you keep it whole, they split it on the on the sides of that different color and use that different colored fur for a different a different uh, article or something when they're manufacturing. So, whereas you're not doing a uh, commercial tanning for the for the fur market, it probably doesn't doesn't make sense. No, and I find actually on a rabbit, especially the belly is really quite thin. The skin is quite thin and probably the least robust part. Well, definitely the belly and the armpits on any skin really are the thinnest part. But um, in, on a wild rabbit, they're really quite thin. And therefore, I probably wouldn't want to have that as the main piece that I was using, even if it was all nice and white and fluffy. <laughs> um, yeah. After you have your skin off, what's your, your next step in getting it ready for tanning? Well, for a start, actually, it's good to talk about storing skins. So if you can't uh, tan it straight away, um, I my preference is to freeze them simply because the other option really is salting. And salting then kind of adds a whole other process, which is to then wash the salt off. And um, in this environment in particular, it wouldn't be so problematic in dry environments. Any skin that's been salted tends to attract quite a lot of moisture, even when it's tanned. So I tend, uh, just because of the nature of salt, so I tend to avoid salting, especially small furs. I salt deer skins because I can't store, you know, 30, 40 deer skins in my freezer. But if I just get a batch of 10 rabbit skins, I tend to try and freeze them if I can't do it straight away. Um, and I think salting is a common misconception, especially, I don't, I don't know if that is across the world, but it is over here. People come to me and like, okay, so I've tanned the skin. I've put salt on it. And people think just by putting salt on their rabbit skin, they've tanned it. And it actually is, it's sort of just, it's stopping decay. So in a way, yeah, you've, somehow preserved it but it's not at all tanned and and then it will just keep attracting water until something else happens to it and that's my experience anyway uh unless it's kept really dry so yeah so i tend not to salt small skins i um yeah so with a rabbit i would process it wet um as opposed to drying it out first so imagine it's straight off the animal I then either use my thumbs uh, or a small kind of blunt knife. No, not a knife, like a blade, almost like a paint scraper. Do you know what I mean by paint scraper? Um, as we have paint scrapers here, but they're kind of... Uh... Yeah, so imagine a paint scraper with a curved top and blunt. <laughs> So something like that, just like, or even, you know, a spoon kind of shape, uh, but sharpened spoon or a blunt paint scraper, rounded paint scraper, any, but, but mostly I use my thumbs and I peel off what's called the membrane. So um, any skin uh, that you're going to be working with has a layer underneath. So as a brain tanner, you'll know the membrane as well. It has a layer under on the flesh side of the skin that um, it 
it kind of makes your skin slide around. It's the myofascia, so it makes your skin not be stuck to your muscles, but it's movable over the muscles. So that layer is basically waterproof or watertight. And um, you want to remove that so that whatever tanning solution we're putting on isn't blocked by that water repellent layer. So in a rabbit skin, it's a very delicate process of working out when you've got that layer and when you're through to basically the skin, proper skin. Um, and I like my trick is to start at the edge. So that's also why I like the cut down the belly because it creates like a little step um, from which I start without an edge. Uh, I'm kind of just starting in the middle, uh, but I like, I like starting at the edge and working in, but everyone has a different way. You know, uh, I think everything I'm going to say now, if someone's <laughs> everything from now on, if someone has tanned a rabbit skin and done it differently and done it successfully, like that's also the right way. It's like, there is no right way for this. There's just, there's just a functional way. Yeah. That's my functional way. And other people will have their functional ways. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I somehow get the membrane off. So you might need a little tool or I lay it over my knee and use my knife with the blade flat against the skin and scrape. Um, but it's pretty delicate process and it can be quite easy to make holes, especially in wild rabbits. Domestic rabbits are a little thicker. Yeah, that definitely makes sense why you're using your thumb for things like a rabbit. Because, yeah, when I've I've membraned larger things, I've always used a scraper or something. But, yeah, rabbits are thin enough that I imagine that could cause issues if you try and scrape them. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say how I do a fox is slightly different because it's that one step bigger. And it would be the same for a domestic rabbit if you've got quite a big one, which is I pin them out flat and dry them. And then I scrape them dry so that the membrane just peels off like kind of paper. And that tends to work really well for something like a fox or a domestic rabbit. Does that help ensure that you don't go too deep and scrape yeah. off the hair roots? Because I know yeah. that uh, I, I, I usually do my furs. I've always scraped them when they're wet. But um, I've had a couple in the past where I've scraped too deep and cut off the hair roots and then you start losing patches of hair. Would doing a dry help avoid that? I think that's something to do with time of year, but I haven't worked out the pattern for that, but it just tends to happen sometimes. <laughs> I Yeah, I'm afraid I haven't worked out the pattern, but I don't I don't think that's you having gone wrong uh, or gone too far, as it were. I think, yeah, maybe someone, someone else will know more about that than me, but there, there's something about... There's a changing hair and, um, you know, certain times of year, the shedding and the regrowing, and it seems to just happen sometimes. So you do rabbits wet with your thumb, and then you do larger furs. You, like, tack them out on a flat surface, dry them, and then you use your same scraper tool that you're using on a rabbit hide to try and scrape that off, or do you use something else? Uh, no, yeah, I would use, like, a, a deer scraper tool, so a wet scrape, double-handled blunt bladed tool can you describe that real briefly for people that haven't haven't scraped a deer so i would uh put it on a beam which is sort of a rounded piece of wood that is got two legs so it's propped up to kind of waist height 
and lay the hide flesh side up on that bean. Then you have a tool that's generally got two handles either side. And so it's like a two handled knife with a blade across the middle, but the blade is blunt. Though it tends to still have a bevel. And you kind of use that at about 45 degree angle, scraping that hide laid out on the beam. Do you uh, generally tend to scrape from head to tail or from tail to head, or does it matter in your experience? I tend to do head to tail, but that might be because I first learned buckskin. So (laughs) um, I don't know. I just follow that methodology. Um, I know I've heard conflicting things from a few different people and which direction you're supposed to do it if you want the hair left on. And I haven't done enough of them to really have an opinion one way or the other. So I'm just curious what, what other people do. Yeah. I've not noticed it being a big factor. I've not noticed it being a big factor. No. But I, I feel like, I feel like I should say like, don't believe anything I say, you know, about everything and not just you, but everyone like, don't believe anything I say because do it, you know, do it. And if you find out different, great. And let me know. And I, I really feel like stressing that it's, it's a kind of experimental art rather than this is the science of it. And, um, yeah, that's more the way I've approached it. You know, I know there's some people who really look into the science of it and, um, I really respect that and haven't done that in such a scientific way. I guess that's not how my mind works. <laughs> Treat it more like a go by feel type yeah. project. Yeah. So uh, once we have them scraped, what do we do? What do we do next? Well, you would need some bark solution, which is basically tree bark chipped up in some way, made small and boiled, and you basically make a really, really strong tea. Is there a specific type of bark that works or doesn't work, things you need to look for? Yeah, I um, I know the British ones. <laughs> but for me, it's oak and willow uh, are basically my favorite. Chestnut is also good, like sweet chestnut. Um, I use dug fir as well and sometimes spruce. So those are probably the, yeah, they're all the main ones I use. And in a way, yeah, so some trees definitely have more tannins in them. But I've also noticed that certain trees have different qualities. So if you think of an oak tree, it's like a big, strong, solid tree that kind of tends to create when you're talking about leather, like it's a bit more tougher. Whereas I find with willow, it's a kind of flexible, smaller tree. I tend to use that more for the more flexible, smaller hides, but it all works so long as it's got tannins. Yeah. But there's, there's subtle qualities to the different trees. So you have noticed a difference then in some of them that they make a stiffer leather versus others then? Yeah, yeah. In particular, I guess the most marked would be, say, between oak and willow. Hmm. Interesting. I haven't haven't really heard that from other people before. I know people have commented on like the color difference they get in various different uh, materials they use for a tan, but I haven't heard people mention the different flexibility uh, factors uh, when it comes to the 
bark in the tan. So um, you're just getting bark and chipping it up to do this, shredding it in some way. I mean, so it's good to get fre- – it's really important you get fresh bark, not go for a walk in the woods, find a tree that fell a year ago, take that bark because the bark is the, – the tannins are water-soluble. So say it rained on that tree all year, that bark would be really low in tannins. So you want a freshly felled tree or branch. And, um, yeah, I try and make the bark as small as is kind of – until I'm not having fun, you know, um, basically, you know, I'm not going to spend, it is a sort of, you know, what's worth doing. And then, Hey, I've got better things to do than make my bark really, really, really tiny. Um, I've used a chipper before when I had a really big quantity and, um, I sometimes just use an ax and just chop it up. So yeah, just try and make it as small as possible because the more surface area you have, the, more tannins you can get into the water and out of the bark. Similar to something like uh, if you're just doing a normal tea, then you're not going to grab whole mint leaves and throw them in a pot of water. Probably you're going to crush them up and whatever before you try and brew your, your tea. How, how do you know when you have a strong enough solution? So you're boiling the bark. At what point do you know that it's strong enough and you don't have just like a, I don't know, a mild... I know, I know you've got to have it strong enough or you're just going to end up rotting in a, a slightly oak, oaked water. Yeah, so I taste it, basically. that's I don't have any machines to tell me whether there's tannin in it or not. I taste it, and um, you can feel the tannin in your mouth. So you want to be feeling this real astringent, like it dries your tongue out and makes you pucker your mouth and kind of sour. You know, you want to be feeling quite a strong effect because that effect that you're feeling in your mouth, that kind of drying, tightening feeling is what the tannins will do to the skin in the end when the skin's in there. So if it doesn't have any impact on your mouth, it's not really going to have much impact on the skins. Um, So I taste it. And obviously, once it's had a few smelly deer hides in it, I tend not to taste it anymore and I <laughs> I try and go by memory of how many hides I've put in and what it looks like you know if I put my hand in there and it looks quite watery above my hand uh you know if I can see my hand clearly and it's watery I'd probably throw it out but um yeah the when you're boiling I tend to just boil for one about one hour and then um strain it and then I boil that same bark again in fresh water so you have two or even three boils from the same bark so you're extracting a little bit more the next time to make a slightly weaker solution and then the third solution would be a little bit weaker but you're still getting tannins do they concentrate down at all if you keep it boiling so if you got your your second or third solution and then you took it off and you just boiled some of the water off. Would it concentrate down to be the same concentration as the first one? Or is that even worth the time and effort? Uh, I've not done that. And I don't, I mean, that it, that would be logical. But in a way, you also want enough liquid for your hide to be free flowing within it. So if you're making your solution very tiny. And in a way, when, when we get onto tanning, you'll see that it makes sense to keep those weaker. Okay. 
that that's kind of logical, but I don't tend to do that. And I've not known, um, yeah, people in Scandinavia do that either. So, yeah, I, I mean, I should probably say like my main, having learned just uh, hair off bark tanning in the States, um, I've then learned a lot more of the hair on tanning through my own experiments and through people working in Scandinavia. Um, so I think, yeah, so, so I have other than my own experiments, there's sort of a whole realm of amazing tanners over there who are really working with bark tanning and really keeping that skill alive. Um, definitely a really good book to look at is um, Lotta Rames. It's pretty much the only really available book on bark tanning that I know of. And she she's Swedish and she runs courses and she does quite a lot of fish leather tanning and um but she also has a book just on tanning in general and um yeah I recommend that if you're starting although it's not it's only available from her website. Okay. Yeah we'll uh link that one up so people can go um buy it if they if they want to delve a little deeper. Yeah, sorry, I just sort of wanted to feed that in because it feels important to name the the lineages. Absolutely. Um, so you tasted your your bark solution. You're looking for a pretty strong uh, reaction in your mouth. Do you have any sorts of rules of thumb for how much solution you need for X amount of hides? Like if you have, say, five rabbit hides, are you going to need a gallon of solution? Are you going to want to put them in more than that? What's your, your rough ratio of hide to solution? Uh, I'm trying to do a gallon liter translation. <laughs> um, I think there's roughly three and three quarters, roughly four liters to the gallon. Okay, yeah. Well, I'd want maybe 10 to 15 liters. So maybe is a five gallon bucket a thing? Yes. Yeah. So I reckon something like a five gallon bucket. Um, yeah. So if you have a big pan, that, that's really helpful because <laughs> then you can make a big amount at once. Um, so something like a 20 liter pan or something. And then you can, um, fill the pan about three quarters full with bark. And then I top it up with water. So that should make enough solution for, yeah, five rabbit skins. So you want there to be quite a bit of solution around your, your furs when you put them in there. Yeah, well, I, I, so I guess we could get on to then, we've got these three buckets of solution. We've got the weak one that we boiled third. We've got the kind of medium one that we boiled second. And we've got the really strong one that we boiled first. Yeah. So I would put the hides first of all in the third boil with deer skin or thicker skin it's this is more important but i still like to use the same principle for smaller skins which is basically not to put the skins in a really strong solution straight away but to work okay. them up towards the strong solution simply because you can have an issue that's basically where you tan the outside of the skin and then it forms a barrier to the tannins penetrating deeper. Okay, so essentially you tanned it too fast on the outside. 
Yep, and then you end up with raw in the middle, and it's not able to. The tannins aren't able to get in and tan it. Much more of a problem with thicker skins, but um, I tend to work them up much more quickly with furs, so up in strength much more quickly. So I could put the rabbits in the third boil, the weakest solution, just for say an hour or so, and I'm stirring them quite a lot. Like, say I'll put them somewhere where I know I'm going to be passing by through that day. So for an hour or two, I'll have them in there and I'll just stir them every now and then, making sure if any bits are folded together that they'll be moving so that all the surfaces are in touch with the solution. And after an hour, I might pour away half of that solution and add in a load of the second boil, which is a bit stronger. And over the course of the first day, basically, I'll be strengthening that solution quite regularly every few hours. So you just keep doing the same process? You dump part of it out and refill it with? Yeah. And I might keep... If I if what I'm pouring off is still fairly strong, but not strong enough for my skins to be increasing, I might keep it and use it as the first solution for something else. And by the end of the first day, I'd really want to be in pure second boil. So that's why you want to make quite a lot of solution because you'll have used up some of your second boil strengthening that. And then what you should have left would be maybe half half of your second boil that you can put all the skins in and um, it will be enough room for them to float about, not squashed right into each other. Okay. And that that's over the period of one day, you gradually just shift them over to full second bucket solution. How long do you leave them in, in that solution before you move on? Yeah, so I'd leave them overnight, of course. I, <laughs> I'm not that dedicated to my skins that I get up in the middle of the night to strengthen them. But um, yeah, so overnight and then maybe at some point during the second day, I'd strengthen again. And I guess part of this is how quickly you need this to happen. So on our courses, we managed to do it in sort of like a 48-hour period. But at home, I would maybe take more like four days or five days because I don't need it to happen quite quickly. I can spread it out a bit. So I may leave them and just strengthen them once on the second day if I'm at home. And then probably by the, by the third day, I want to be into boil number one. Uh, so the real strong solution. And um, yeah, and, and depending on the number of hides you've got and the, num- the amount of uh, tanning solution, you might need even more. So you might need to have boiled more solution uh, to strengthen them. So it's going to go, you're going to use a lot of solutions. Basically what you're telling us, cook up lots in advance. <laughs> I, I mean, it's good to have a good amount of strong solution. I think one of the main mistakes that people make is not uh, moving hides into strong enough solution quickly enough. Um, and like like you said earlier, you know, how do you know you're not just sitting your hide in some oaky water that your hide is then going to rot in because that's the risk. So if the solution isn't strong enough, you're then essentially just soaking the hide rather than tanning it. And with fur on hides, it's really important that you're not 
rotting the hide because one of the first stages of decay is that the hair falls out. So you'll know if they start rotting because your hair will start falling out. So so you do want to be quite on it with hair on hides. So when you were saying at home, you would leave this over like a uh, four-day period, you were maybe five-day. You're telling us we don't want to leave it too much longer than that or we might have start having issues with hair falling out, especially, I imagine, during the summer when it's warmer as well. Yeah, temperature definitely makes a difference. And if you're in a hot place, then try and, you know, keep it out the sun and keep it cool and things. And, oh, I mean, never put your hides in a warm solution from the stove. Make sure the solution's cool, obviously, from the cooking. But, yeah, I I try and keep them cool in the summer. And then, obviously, the process slows down in the winter. But I I've, I tend to take a lot longer with something like a fox can take. So long as your solution's strong enough, I kind of go more into the week and a half for a fox. But like I say, don't believe everything I say because I last winter was working in Norway in a tannery uh, called Jutelskin, um, which with another amazing Scandinavian tanner called Sophie Klepper. And she tans her fox skins in three days, and it's a really quick process. And wow. In a way, I feel like the Scandinavian way is slightly less tanned and then more oil, which is the next step. Um, whereas the way I've kind of self-investigated into is quite well-tanned skins with the tannin. So it's really tanned all the way through. Um, and the way to check that would be to make a little cut in the skin, maybe in the neck, the thickest part of the skin. You can see whether the colour has penetrated all the way through that cross-section. And I tend to go until I can see a good amount of colour through the skin. That same colour on the outside, does it does it really penetrate all the way through? Or is it still lighter on the inside? Yeah, it's generally lighter on the inside, but it's lost a kind of bluish tinge and it's all the beautiful bark tan orangey brown yeah i suppose that's probably something good to mention to people is uh raw hides are kind of a bluish white color so any 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 deviation from that is what you're looking for yeah 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 not blue basically yeah and and something else that on that note of you know is it strong enough is it rotting when do i strengthen the solution if if the surf the flesh surface of the hide is beginning to feel really slimy or um yes yeah, kind of got the sliminess to it that's a good sign you need to strengthen and of course smell is also a good sign you need to strengthen the solution um hopefully you'd catch it before those two but that's the amazing thing about bark if it starts slightly tipping into rotting so long as you go into a strong enough solution the tannins uh, hinder bacterial growth so they can stop rotting and you can save your hides. I've, I've had to do that a few times and bring them back from that kind of, oh, this is getting a bit slimy because you want them to feel a little bit kind of dry almost, even though they're wet. You don't want a sliminess, you want a dryness to the fibres. Okay. That's good to know that we can save a hide that's starting to uh, to progress a little further than we wanted it to. 
But you just mentioned smell. As long as we're on the topic of smell, what should this smell like? Is this going to be a uh, horrid smell that neighbors over the back fence are going to be worried about calling the cops on us because something's stinking on our side of the fence? Or is this going to be a relatively mild odor? Ideally, it shouldn't smell bad. Um, it's Yeah, that, that would generally be a sign that something is rotting. Um, and so it should always smell like this kind of woody, whatever tree you've used. So, you know, the Douglas fir has an amazing sort of resinous scent and things. So for sure, the solution will reduce in its tree smell and take on a little bit of the skin, but it shouldn't smell bad at all. Like that rotting smell obviously is a clear sign <laughs> that something's going a bit wrong and you want to strengthen it, basically. Um, it shouldn't smell bad, no. Okay, good. So, sometimes my projects have been a little on the potent side. so <laughs> I think brains have much more potential to um, be really smelly than bark tanning, yeah. You know, I do, I do it with kids and... They're fine with it, with teenagers who are probably the trickiest customers in terms of tanning. And so, yeah, they were they were really fine with it. And they were surprised, I think, actually, of, oh, this doesn't smell at all bad because people have images of, yeah, you know, urine and brains and all kinds of gross stuff. It's probably the least gross way to tan, actually. So, yeah, it's quite accessible way in a way. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, it's a good way to get people started then. Things yeah. like rabbits are easy to come by. They're small enough that it's not going to uh, be a massive undertaking for someone who's learning to try and stay ahead of it and stay on top of it to get it tanned. And if it doesn't stink, that's a, that's a huge benefit as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know people who tan fish skins in their kitchen because it's so small and shouldn't smell and quite easy to do as well. So, yeah. It's that unsmelly. <laughs> um, yeah, that'll be a, a nice change. But uh, so we've soaked them now, I guess, for four to five days for a rabbit, week, week and a half for a something larger like a fox. What's your your next step? Yeah. So if we think they're done, I get them out, rinse them, kind of just wash off the bark solution. And then um, I I dry them a little and then I oil the flesh side. So I tend to just use like a, a, a liquid at room temperature oil. So nothing too heavy like lard or something, but something like olive oil or sunflower oil or something like that. And um, rub just a little, a little scoop of the hand full into the skin. And it will look quite oily because it's it's full of water as well and you've rubbed oil on a wet surface. But as you then dry the skin with the oil on, the skin the oil will penetrate into the skin and the water will evaporate off because it will seem very oily to begin with because there's, the skin's obviously full of water. So I, um, yeah, so then I dry it. And as the skin is drying, you want to be moving it like stretching or kind of scrunching it or in some way moving the skin, stretching the fibres open. 
opening it up so that once it's dry, it will be all flexible and soft and that oil will have penetrated right into the skin and essentially oiled all the fibers within the skin to keep them flexible. Are you just drying outdoors, letting them sit somewhere and coming by every now and then to, to work it? Or is this a put it near a heat source and spend some time seriously manipulating it as it, as it dries quicker? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I actually, so if we take it from wet, I let it dry a tiny bit, but not much, get oil on there. And then I let it dry quite a bit more until it gets to the point where it's dark, but you pull it. Uh, if you just pull a little bit apart, it turns light. And uh, if you've done brain tanning, you'll know what I mean by that moment where the moisture is leaving the hide so much that the color changes when you pull it. And then from then on, I would work it near, if it's a sunny day, just outside is fine or by a fire or any heat source really. And, um, but yeah, not constantly working it. It's bark tanning is a lot more forgiving than brain tanning. So with brain tanning by the end, you're working pretty constantly. I find on softening it with bark tanning because the whole kind of fiber network is changed by the bark all the fibers are being held open anyway by the bark solution the bark's made like little bridges or joins between the fibers so they want to be open so it kind of is it it's much easier to soften so you don't have to work as hard at it Yes, I'd just work it. You know, I might soften three rabbits at once or four or something, just moving between them all, and that would be enough, yeah. So it's a little more forgiving than it sounds like. Um, How about when you move to a a larger, more medium-sized fox? Is that going to change things at all? Do you need to be working it more because it's a thicker hide? Or do you, I don't know. You were saying like a palm full of oil for a rabbit skin. How much do you use on a fox hide? And then how much more do you have to to focus on manipulating and stretching it and whatnot in order to turn out with a softer leather? Um, a little bit more, but it's it again. It it is more forgiving. I found than brain tanning. I mean, brain tanning furs is amazing, and um, but I found with wild rabbits, it can go really papery unless you really concentrate. Um. So yeah, fox, I maybe use, I don't know, a bit less than half a cup of oil. And again, yeah, it, it, it's, it's been quite a simple task to do the, soft, the final softening and you can kind of move between a number of things or just keep coming back to it and giving it a stretch every now and then. It doesn't have to be this constant thing. Although for your first few, you might want to follow it through its drying process, I guess focus on a little more yeah i would say so thin skins especially have a tendency to go papery and kind of crunchy and um the the other great thing is say you didn't soften it well enough you can just get that bit wet with say like a wet towel or something and re-soften that bit you can go back and work it a second time if it didn't quite come to the point you want it to the first time yeah how long, how long does a, an average, well, let, let's say you have a perfect high tanning day in your area. What does that look like temperature-wise, weather-wise, and then how long would it take a, 
a rabbit hide to to dry out. Well, it would be nice and sunny and with a gentle breeze, and it would be well where I live. I don't know, thirty degrees Celsius <laughs> is is a hot day, so that would be nice, and that would it would be really quick. It'd be less than an hour. Okay, so this is really fast then. Yeah, I think in the perfect weather conditions or by a fire, I think you're looking at an hour. Yeah, it's a lot faster than I anticipated. Mm, well, they're very thin. You know, yeah, if you're doing a fox or a domestic rabbit skin, they're a bit thicker, so it could take longer. But um, it can happen fast. That's that's not even like a that's a hot day, but it's not terribly hot around here. At least that's like a. 85 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. So that's a, that's like a hot summer day, but it's not, it's not quite July or August hot yet. That's like a end of June hot. I'm just, I'm just trying to put this in perspective. How long does it take? Cause I'm, I'm used to, yeah, you go out and you, you soften a, yeah, a buckskin and you're out there for quite a while. If you're doing a deer size hide, um, I was just wondering when you scale down something smaller and you're doing the bark one, how, how quickly it dries, but. Sounds like it was pretty fast then. I mean, something like a small fur is really portable and quick and small scale and easy. Yeah, it's so different to... So I might go to a gathering around a fire. I might have a, a rabbit skin that I've just taken out the bark and I might just take it with me and like round the fire while we're chatting. I'll have softened it. Um, you know, it, it doesn't require taking time out and yeah, like a buckskin. Okay. This is today I'm doing the softening and it's a big thing. And yeah, it's, it's sort of a, it's a more, it can be more woven into life and socializing and yeah. It could be very handy having, I don't know, just like uh, after I put the kids to bed at night or something like that, I could go out and hurry and finish up a, a rabbit hide in the evening before I go to bed. <laughs> something like nice. that in the yeah. hour and a half. So that would be a, a nice nice project to be able to do in the evening. Um, have you noticed much of a difference on the different types of oils you've used? Does it influence the the leather you end up with in the end if you use different sorts of oils? I know you mentioned sunflower and olive oil. Does, is there a difference between the two of them and then your end product? Um, I haven't noticed one between those two. But when I've made sort of deer skin leather... I have noticed differences if you're using more kind of solid at room temperature fats, like animal fats, than if you're using, yeah, more liquid fats. It it can, I mean, the end result can be a bit sort of tougher and um, things with more solid fats, heavier and lighter with the lighter fats. But yeah, I, I, I don't, wouldn't use that kind of heavy fat on a fur skin really anyway. So I haven't noticed much difference now. No, it's good to know though that there's a a difference between the the solid fats and the liquid fats. Um, yeah, not for for the smaller project like this, but in the future for people who want to experiment with things, it's good to know that there's a, a functional difference between the two types of oils. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're wanting to make a really water repellent uh, piece of leather, then some good heavy fat would be really helpful. And but if you're wanting to make a kind of garment then you don't really want that level of 
fattiness next to your skin. Yeah. Something a little more flexible and soft, breathable. Is there uh, anything else that you do to the hide after it dries or is that a finished product at that point? Yeah, so long as I'm happy with the softness and, you know, I don't want to re-soften any spots and that's it. Then you can make something beautiful. <laughs> I notice you do a lot of pouches and whatnot that I've uh, I've seen pictures of on your website and on your, your Instagram account. I follow you on Instagram. Um, it's just some pretty cool looking pouches you do with your, your furs and your fish skin and whatnot. Thanks. Give me some ideas. I have a lot of things I want to I want to try making now. Yeah, I mean, fur fur is great as well, obviously, because you can add it to any clothing and make it warmer. So you've got a hood and a jacket. You can line it with fur or or gloves that you want to line the cuffs with or something. So yeah, I quite like uh, doing that with fur as well. And um, in a way something thin like rabbit i i have a fox fox fur jacket that works well but something thin like a rabbit i wouldn't make an item of clothing just from that i don't think it's the seams wouldn't be strong enough basically so i'd more line something with rabbit if i was going to be using it in a kind of more robust way yeah like lining a hood or a jacket or something um I think that's pretty much basically covered the the furs then um, gives us a good understanding of where we're going with a small one like a rabbit and then with a slightly larger medium sized fur like a fox. Um, I like the fact that this is relatively tool free. I mean, the only things we talked about tool wise that we really need to use is like a rounded paint scraper or yeah, something to scrape the membrane off. Is there any other tools that you recommend as saving time or is that pretty much it? Well, when I'm softening, I sometimes use a little steak. So basically a, 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 an upright stick with a, a gentle kind of blunted point at the end, like a flat wedge point. And you use them for brain tanning, you know, a steak to soften on. But I have like miniature ones that um, are quite nice for softening the rabbit skin. But it's in no way essential. Handy if you have it around, but not essential yeah. for people that are just getting started. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, with with brain tanning a deer skin or any anything bigger, it, it's so much easier with these this infrastructure of the scraping beam and the stake and the cable. And whereas with this, you can just do it all by hand, absolutely fine. And um, yeah, I literally sometimes use the back of a chair or. I don't know, a, a stick that's in the right place off a tree or, you know, anything with a slight edge just to help soften it. But you can do it all by hand. Yeah. Is that that works just fine all the way up through your medium heights like foxes too? You don't need to worry about, yeah, yeah, stretching them more like you would a deer hide? Yeah, that that's my experience. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they tend to be fine um, like that. Hmm. Follow-up question. Does the fur... On your rabbit hides or your fox hides, does that change color? Because I know we were talking the skin is going to change color. That's what you're looking for to tell if it's tanned or not. Does it also dye the color of your fur? If you start out with a nice, pretty red color with a fox hide, are you going to end up with something different or is it going to stay red? It pretty much stays the same. Sometimes like the belly fur can be white and um, 
on rabbits and there can be white bits on foxes and that tends to stay pretty white as well. If anything, it gives, especially a fox, like an even more gorgeous dark red kind of colour. But no, it doesn't tend to dye the dye the hair. I guess you'd need some kind of mordant, like if you're dyeing wool. Yeah. Interesting. I was, wasn't was sure what you'd end up with if you did that because, uh, yeah, the rabbits and whatnot, you end up with either a grey or a white colour. And if you started dyeing that, I was curious if you'd end up with a, a brown by the end of it or not. But. Yeah, I've never done a fully white, white rabbit. So you may end up with a slightly browner one. But because all the ones I'm doing are wild, so they've got the gray kind of pattern on them. Yeah. Yeah, our cottontails are a gray color. But up on top of the mountain, we have snowshoe hares and they go white during the winter. So they're straight white this time of year. And kind of curious what would happen if I dumped one in a solution, if it would stay white or not. Yeah, I mean, if you if you find it is dying it and you didn't want that, then there's a whole other way to do it, which would be is how I do, say, a sheepskin, which you're just putting the solution, you're laying the skin out and you're just pouring and rubbing the solution into the skin rather than soaking the skin. Okay. That's a whole other topic in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, you could say you had a perfect white thing that you didn't want to dye in any way. You could probably tan the skin like that and get less solution on the fur. Well, I think we've uh, covered things fairly well. Is there any uh, any part of this you think we've skipped over that you want to clarify for people that are just beginning and have an interest in learning how to bark tan? Or do you think we've we've covered things well enough that people have a pretty good shot at turning out a usable, functional article? Well, just one thing came to mind, which is what I got stuck on when I was trying to learn to tan before having a teacher, which was that when you're softening, you must keep softening until it's dry. Because it could be kind of semi-dry and you've got it to a nice place of it's all flowing skin and feels good. But if you just leave it, then it will go hard again. So... I think that's one of the key things with all tanning is the softening process. You've got to keep going until it's dry. Otherwise, it will just go crunchy. So, yeah, I think I didn't say that. But I think otherwise, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have any recommended resources for folks who want to get a little more in-depth and go a little more? I noted you mentioned Matt Richards' book and then... uh, was it Lada Rame? Rame? That's right. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a, a guy running Skill Cult. Oh, yeah. Steve Edelholm. Steve Edelholm. Yeah. So he has some amazing resources online. He's being very generous with his knowledge. Um, lots of YouTube videos about bark tanning, about loads of amazing things. But he's... He's some of the best information about bark tanning that I found online. Um, yeah, he's a fantastic resource. He's actually, um, I own two buckskin books right now, and that's his is one of them. He also wrote, um, I think it's called Brain Tan, or maybe it's called Buckskin, The Ancient Art of Brain Tanning. I think it's called Buckskin, The Ancient Art of Brain Tanning. Um, that's, that's probably my go-to reference for wet-scraped 
buckskin and he has a chapter in there on vegetable tanning but he doesn't doesn't really dive in depth at that point that was kind of just when he started experimenting with it so i follow him on on youtube and on his website as well because yeah he has a lot of tanning tips and techniques a lot of information for people yeah i really appreciate it when someone is so generous with their hard-earned wisdom like he is so yeah it's great yeah any other ones that have really helped out um there's some good articles on braintan.com and that has a bark tanning section on the website now so it's worth reading if you're getting into bark tanning it's worth reading the bark tanning section of braintan.com as well but there isn't there just isn't that much and i think fight if someone's running a class anywhere near you then i would recommend going to that because you know things like what does a strong solution feel like in your mouth or taste like and and what does you know it smell like and all of that is just so great to get from first-hand experience that's hard to transmit over uh podcast really too. Hard. <laughs> we can tell people that you want it to yeah that you want it to pucker up your mouth but it's hard for people to really know what that means yeah there's well there's a berry here called a slow berry on a blackthorn tree i don't know if you have them but if you eat one of those it does that it it completely dry makes your mouth go really dry and yeah maybe you have a fruit out there that does the same yeah a similar one would be choke cherry um here in the west very astringent so yeah similar sort of thing i probably not to the degree where it would be useful for tanning but if you go and if someone wants to go out and get the experience, yeah, go out and pick a choke cherry that's not quite ripe and put it in your mouth and you're going to find out real quick what yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as long as we're talking about workshops, let's go ahead and tell people where they can find more about your work- workshops. Um, go ahead and tell us what sort of classes you have coming up and where people can find information on your classes and how to sign up and things like that. Yeah. So if you're in Europe, then um, in the UK, I run um, with another woman called Jane. We run tanning classes, which covers buckskin, bark tanning rabbit furs and bark tanning fish skins. Um, and they're on oakandsmoketannery.co.uk. And then I also teach tanning as part of a year long program called The Old Way, um, where we're delving deep into ancestral skills across all areas so we're foraging and hunting and fishing and natural movement and craft and tanning's part of that so there's tanning on the old way as well yeah those uh, that's the old way dot info in the uk as well okay and our uh i follow them on social media as well i think it's kind of fun to see what they're up to um i've never actually been to their website though so i might have to go check that out yeah um on your classes what can people expect like how long are they um do they end up with a a finished article they can take home things like that yes yeah we definitely make sure that everyone gets to take home a whole hide that they've tanned themselves um so for buckskin we give it four days which it generally takes that long especially your first hide so four days to make a, a deer skin into a buckskin and then the 
rabbit and fish is just over a weekend. So um, and not, you can choose to do just the bark tanning or just the buckskin or the whole thing altogether. They're back to back. So, yeah. Okay. That would be a, a fun weekend for somebody who wants to get away, has a moment to, to do this. Do, uh, do you usually do the buckskin then the first four days of the week or do you hold them? Because you were saying the bark tanning is over the weekend. Yeah. Is the buckskin the first four days of the week and then the bark tan? Um, we've done it both way around. <laughs> we, we can't work out which works better because either it's a good warm-up to do the bark tanning and then you go into buckskin. But um, it's also a nice kind of warm down after the crazy work of doing a whole buckskin and the kind of initiation that is your first ever buckskin. So um, we do it both way around. <laughs> works both ways don't get set on a, a particular way and yeah let people know where they can come find you guys i've noticed you guys post some some gorgeous pictures of your hide tanning camp in uh was it wales yes with your cob buildings and thatched roofs and whatnot can you tell people a little bit about the location yeah so we have two locations one's devon here and then one is wales and um in wales we run it at um basically what's uh, a neolithic village recreation so it's going to be a living museum uh, it's still in its building process but the buildings are up and they're these amazing cob walled thatched with heather which is a kind of moorland plant that grows all over the moors traditional very traditional old thatching material and they're in a traditional neolithic style so um, it's kind of the moment of of hunter-gatherers transitioning to a more settled life way, um, that moment in history. And we've also built, or Jane has built, uh, a Neolithic tannery uh, there. So we have a heather-thatched tannery with fire pit and softening beams and all of that built into the structure. And it's just beautiful in the rolling hills of Wales, very ancient landscape. Um yeah, that uh, pictures like that really make me want to come visit. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, pictures like that. Oh, I need to go take a hide tanning class in Wales. That would be awesome. It's gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have two great locations because the one in Devon is um, we do it in May, which is when this flower called the bluebell is out, and the bluebell basically carpets the forest in blue. It's the most amazing flower. So it's just this particular time in the spring when loads of ancient forests uh, are carpeted in blue. And so we hold it in a bluebell forest. So that's generally pretty nice. As oh, well. that's gorgeous too. <laughs> yeah. You have me sold. If I'm ever uh, in the UK, I'm going to have to see if you guys are holding a workshop that I can drop in on and come take a class. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jane, thanks. Or Jesse. Sorry, we were just talking about Jane. Yep. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yep. Really appreciate it. Um, appreciate you sharing your knowledge and teaching us how to do bark tanning. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely our pleasure. Well, what do you think? Does it make you want to go out and uh, start a batch of hides? Start a batch of furs? No, it does for me. Like I said, I have a couple uh, couple furs in my freezer right now, and I think they're going to be thawed pretty soon. I think I've got to give this a whirl. Um, shout out again. Thank you, Jesse, for uh, being willing to come on. If anyone lives in the UK or Europe um, and can get to the UK easily, 
Go take one of Jesse's classes. Uh, as we discussed early on in the episode, things really are easier to learn in person with someone there to guide you and direct you. So uh, she has both buckskin and bark tanning classes. So if you're interested in, in learning some traditional tanning, go go check out Jesse's uh, website at oakensmoketannery.co.uk. Um, also, the show notes for this episode will be found over at folkcraftrevival.com slash fcr4. Uh, that should that should give you all the links and show notes for this episode. And finally, as um, I also mentioned at the the start of the episode, uh, it would be very helpful if you would be willing to share this with a friend. Um, share it with someone who is also interested in traditional skills. That's the quickest and easiest way to help me out at the moment. Help the podcast out. Um, yeah, just. Spread the message, spread the word, let people know, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening. That way you can, um, that way you'll get updated every week when a new episode comes out. I think that's it. Let's get out there and make something. Go start some tanning. <laughs>